This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. Hello, my name is Gary Ganzi, and I am Vice President Intellectual Property for Siemens Water Technologies Corp., a subsidiary of Siemens AG. Siemens Water develops products and services for treatment of water and wastewater for industry and municipalities. I've spent most of my career employed in industry developing products that purify water. I'm a named inventor on 28 U.S. patents, and my work in R&D caused me to become more and more interested in intellectual property. I became a U.S. patent agent in 1993 and graduated from Suffolk University Law School in 2008, concentrating in intellectual property. Today I want to speak to you about improving patent quality. My objective is to view patent quality from a public policy perspective. I believe that doing so leads directly to a discussion of the need for clarity on the subject of obviousness and, in that way, provides insights into improving patent quality from both the practitioner's and examiner's perspectives. During this discussion, I will cite references that I believe are invaluable in leading to an understanding of patent quality, and I have provided a detailed bibliography for posting on the Suffolk University Law School Internet site. It is also important to note that this presentation does not necessarily reflect that of Siemens or any other organization. In my view, the public perceives a quality patent system as one that limits patent grants to inventions that exceed some minimum incremental threshold of innovation over what is already known or used in the public domain. See, for example, KSR International Company v. Teleflex, Inc., 127 Supreme Court, 1727, 2007. Further, a quality patent system is one where patent examinations are performed promptly and under uniformly and consistently applied standards. In contrast, practitioners often view quality with a narrow and internalized focus as being limited to strict conformance to USPTO formal rules and procedures. I believe viewing patent quality from such an internalized focus will never be capable of fully addressing the real public concern about patent quality. An invention in a patent-eligible field is patentable if, among other things, it is new, useful, and non-obvious. Utility and novelty are critical factors in any determination of patentability, but the single most critical factor in a majority of cases is the non-obviousness determination. See Andrew Moody, Patently Obvious, a dual standard solution to the diverging needs of the information technology and pharmaceutical patent industries. 39 Golden Gate University Law Review, 7172, Fall 2008. As a matter of law, a patent must not be granted if the invention described is obvious. The mistaken granting of a patent to obvious inventions erodes the perception of patent quality. Clearly obvious inventions that receive patent grants erroneously are routinely singled out for public ridicule. The granting of such invalid patents not only leads to a negative view of the overall quality of the patent examination process, but also damages the public perception of the patent system itself. Further, the grant of patent protection for some fraction of seemingly obvious or otherwise unworthy inventions creates uncertainty in the research and business communities. In addition, questions surface as to whether patents are generally deserving of a presumption of validity. The patenting of unworthy inventions is neither good for business nor for the public sector. Practitioners and patent examiners have been seeking for many decades some framework to meet the challenge to provide consistent and uniform application of the law in obvious determinations. My presentation today will argue 
that there is a framework available to respond to the challenge and that the answer to improving patent quality relies in applying that framework during examination in the office. In my opinion, the framework for patent quality improvement involves the application of three concepts. One, the use of a more objective probability test to measure an invention's relative level of innovation or creativity, eliminating as much as possible subjectivity in obviousness determinations. Two, the recognition that creativity and innovation can occur at three different stages during the process of conception and reduction to practice, and that in any non-obviousness assessment, that each of these stages should be analyzed independently and in combination. And three, the recognition that the obviousness assessment should be made as closely as possible in time to the time of the invention, and that a well-reasoned and documented analysis provided at the time of first assessment, and therefore worthy of deference, will provide later tribunals a means to avoid hindsight bias. The Constitution provides Congress with the authorization to perform patent law. See Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8, in part which begins with essentially a public policy preamble to promote the progress of science and useful arts. Patent law was most recently codified by Congress in the Patent Act of 1952, and at that time, obviousness was added to the statutory framework under 35 U.S.C. Section 103, thereby forming a third statutory dimension to the requirements of novelty and utility. The U.S. Supreme Court has concluded that the obviousness dimension of the 1952 Patent Act was intended to codify judicial precedents embracing the principle earlier announced in Hotchkiss v. Greenwood in 1851 and to provide uniformity to the patent inquiry. See also Graham v. John Deere Company of Kansas City, 383 U.S. 1, 1966. 35 U.S. Code Section 103A states, a patent may not be obtained, though the invention is not identically disclosed or described as set forth in Section 102 of this title, if the differences between the subject matter sought to be patented and the prior art are such that the subject matter as a whole would have been obvious at the time of the invention was made to a person having ordinary skill in the art to which said subject matter pertains. Patentability shall not be negative by the manner in which the invention was made. Historically, patent law, and in particular the development of the concept of obviousness, has evolved by placing concepts judicially developed into statutory form. Since the Patent Act of 1952 and the framework set out in 1966 by the Supreme Court in Graham v. Deere, the most important recent developments in the law of obviousness have been the development of the Court of Appeals of the Federal Circuit's Teaching, Suggestion, Motivation, or TSM test, and the elucidation in the Supreme Court's KSRV Teleflex decision in 2007 of the inconsistencies between the TSM test as rigidly applied and the precedent of Graham v. Deere. Quoting, under Section 103, the scope and content of the prior art are to be determined, differences between the prior art and the claims at issue are to be ascertained, and the level of ordinary skill in the pertinent art resolved. Against this background, the obviousness or non-obviousness of the subject matter is determined, end quote. The judicially developed TSM test was established in obviousness determinations beginning in the Court of Customs and Patent Appeals and was extended to an analytical mainstay under the Federal Circuit, CKSR at, at 1741. When it first established the requirement of demonstrating a teaching suggestion or motivation to combine, the Court of Customs and Patent Appeals captured a helpful insight. Helpful insights, however, need not become rigid and mandatory formulas, and when so applied, the TSM test is incompatible with our precedents. End quote. The TSM test was instituted to fulfill a constitutional mandate to provide more uniformity and consistency in obviousness determinations. In summary, the TSM test teaches that unless a tribunal 
can find prior art or some combination of prior art that explicitly or implicitly teaches or suggests the invention. It would motivate a person of ordinary skill to make the invention. The invention is not obvious and eligible for patenting. The court in KSR did not reject the TSM test, but did indicate that its utility was more as a test to make a case for obviousness in the presence of a teaching suggestion or motivation, rather than to determine whether a lack of teaching suggestion or motivation rendered an invention non-obvious. KSR teaches that there is no rigid formula for a determination of obviousness, and that the best test for obviousness, although a matter of law, must be objectively viewed in light of the facts of each case. One of the greatest successes of the TSM test is that it effectively mitigates what is known as the hindsight problem. Studies indicate that it is essentially impossible for a person to eliminate ex-post information when making ex-ante judgments about past events known to have happened. See Gregory Mandel, patently non-obvious to experimental study on the hindsight issue before the Supreme Court in KSR v. Teleflex, 9 Yale Journal of Law and Technology 1, 2007, and also see Obviousness, 121 Harvard Law Review 375-380, November 2007. Commonly, obviousness judgments must be made years later than the invention, such as during the examination or in the courts. Unless the decision-maker resorts to some deterministic process, the hindsight problem renders it very difficult to make an obviousness determination in a uniform and consistently applied way. The TSM test, rigidly applied, defined obviousness mechanistically. That is, if the invention is described in a combination of the prior art, then it is obvious. In KSR, the court agreed that although such a definition improves certainty and reduces the hindsight problem, it sets the bar for patentability too low as the sole standard for non-obviousness. And because it therefore allows obvious inventions to be patented, the TSM test should not be the sole criterion for obviousness. The court has historically interpreted the patent statute with consideration of the Constitution's original intent, rather than by limiting itself to a more literal interpretation of the statute and adherence to formalities. In the context of the patent clause, such an interpretation will inherently include a public policy objective. On that basis, it is self-consistent with the intent of the courts and Congress for practitioners and examiners to consider improvements in patent quality from a public policy perspective rather than solely through a goal of unwavering adherence to formalistic rules and procedures. In order to reject a claim in a patent application, a patent examiner must make a showing that an application for a patent that describes, enables, and claims a new and useful invention is obvious. Usually, the examiner makes a reasoned case indicating that prior art or some combination of prior art and common sense renders the invention obvious as claimed. For the purpose of this discussion, I will assume that the concept of common sense is really a shorthand way to describe the general body of prior art that would have been known at the time of the invention to anyone of ordinary skill. Although the statutory basis of obviousness might in the future be amended to be more mechanistic, currently the patent community is faced with the question, of how an examiner or other tribunal can consistently and uniformly apply the holdings of Graham v. Deere and KSR v. Teleflex without sole reliance on the TSM test. Without a rigidly applied TSM test, the examination and adjudication process would appear to need another method to combat the hindsight problem. From a perspective of economic policy, the innovation bar that distinguishes between a patentable or unpatentable invention is vitally important. Scholars have suggested that the social benefits from the patent system can be optimized by setting the level of innovation at a level that meets three criteria. One, patenting must provide the level of innovation to provide sufficient incentives for potential inventors 
who would not, without those incentives, engage in innovative activities. Two, patenting must provide incentives for investment in innovative activity to investors, to those who would normally, without those incentives, not otherwise engage in higher-risk investments in innovation. And three, patenting should provide little or no incentive for those inventors or investors who would have contributed to the same innovative activities through normal market forces. Further, these issues are tied to relative views of probability of success or even relative financial risk. See Robert P. Merges in Uncertainty and the Standard of Patentability, 7 High Tech Law Journal 1, Spring 1992, quote, If we look to probability theory for patents to improve the probability of investment on riskier ideas, then we should accommodate more patentability for fields where there are very few and highly skilled researchers and also where commercialization is very expensive, end quote. The inventions that are low probability and require a high-risk investment in return for a high social reward are the types of inventions that the patent system should encourage, while high probability and low investment risk innovations are not in need of patent system encouragement. Further, the grant of patents for high probability, low-risk inventions could even be of negative social value by inhibiting further innovation by others. See Michael J. Mora and Catherine J. Strandberg, Patent Carrots and Sticks, A Model of Non-Obviousness, 12 Lewis and Clark Law Review, 547, 2008. Quote, the level of the non-obvious standard directs the degree of risk a researcher will invest for each marginal investment. It therefore affects not whether a researcher will do research, but the creative level at which the researcher will work, end quote. See also Don Tiller, Devaluing Invention, The Push for Patent Reform, 14 Texas Wesleyan Law Review, 119 and 126 and 131, fall of 2007. Quote, the relationship between an inventor's uncertainty and the need for incentive is recognized as the patent system's requirement that the invention be novel and non-obvious to qualify for patent protection. There is no need to add incentive to create and disseminate information that can be readily derived from existing information through application of ordinary skills. It is interesting that such a patenting system, optimized for social benefit, would thus set the bar for patentability not only based subjectively on the level of conceptual innovation, but also could consider as factors the probability of embarking on the research in the first place. This might lead perhaps to a variant of the obvious-to-try doctrine, but including its converse, non-obvious-to-try. It may even lead to taking into account the level of commercialization risk, perhaps resulting in a variant of the uncertainty level inherent in a given field of art and or an extension of the enablement doctrine as the likelihood that an enablement would suit an ultimate purpose. In sum, some scholars have recast the non-obvious determination in terms of probability. See, for example, Merges in the High Tech Journal and also Gregory Mandel in The Non-Obvious Problem, How the Indeterminate Non-Obviousness Standard Produces Excessive Patent Grants, 42 UC Davis Law Review, 57, 62, November 2008. Quote, the standard should be based on how probable the invention would have been for a person having ordinary skill working on the problem that the invention solves, end quote. In other words, what is the probability that the invention would have been expected to have been successful from the viewpoint of a person of ordinary skill with a complete knowledge at the prior art at the time of the invention? Is there a legal rationale for substituting low probability for non-obvious? 
Perhaps the closest the courts have moved in this direction is they're declaring some inventions as likely to be obvious because the result was predictable or expected. See KSR at 1739. Such a combination of familiar elements, according to known methods, is likely to be obvious when it does no more than yield predictable results. End quote. Substituting low probability for unexpected opens the potential for development of a more quantitative and objective test. A probabilistic determination has the advantages that it meets the requirements of objectivity and flexibility and also provides a mechanism for more uniform determinations. See Darrell and J. Dury and Mark A. Lemley, A Realistic Approach to the Obviousness of Inventions, 50 William & Mary Law Review, 989-991, December 2008, and Amir Simic, the TSM test is dead. Long live the TSM test. The aftermath of KSR. What was all the fuss about? 37 AIPLA Quarterly Journal, 227-253, Spring 2009. A probabilistic determination also allows for factors that provide flexibility based on particular fields of art. For example, factors could include taking into account the uncertainty level that is inherent in a particular field, the skill level inherent in persons of ordinary skill in the particular art, and even the ease of a person of ordinary skill to enter into a particular field or the difficulty of a given art to move the invention to commercial implementation. From a social benefit standpoint, these factors must be overcome if the invention is to have social value. In this way, the threshold for inventiveness could be reduced to a probabilistic determination. That determination would involve the likelihood that someone would not have invested the mental or physical or financial resources to pursue a particular direction of inquiry develop a creative conception, or would have been expected to have succeeded to enablement. See, for example, Moody. If a technology area encompassed inventions that have an inherently low probability of resulting in something of social value, or is inherently unpredictable, then there would be a tendency to lower the threshold of patentability. See also Mora and Strandberg. Also, Gregory Mandel, another missed opportunity, the Supreme Court's failure to define non-obviousness or combat hindsight bias in KSR v. Teleflex, 12 Lewis and Clark Law Review, 323-327, summer of 2008. Probabilities can also be accommodated in defining a person of ordinary skill. A person of ordinary skill is a hypothetical construct and not necessarily a reflection of an actual person. See Mandel in the UC Davis Law Review at 75, quote, how much time and money does a person of ordinary skill have? If there are limited resources, then we may want obvious inventions to be patented just so people will work on the problem. If everyone in the field is very advanced, then they are likely to also be highly innovative, end quote. See also emerges, quote, if a person of ordinary skill is very highly skilled and there are a relatively low number of individuals in the field, there would be a tendency to lower the threshold of patentability, end quote. So, for example... The threshold for patentability might be raised in technology areas such as software, where the entry cost for innovation is low, presumably by sheer numbers of inventors. An invention would be obvious to try and therefore be more likely to have been generated by one of ordinary skill. And the threshold may be lowered in areas such as drug discovery, where presumably it would have been non-obvious to try because the scope of resources required for enablement would not normally be available to a typical person of ordinary skill. Although this line of reasoning is designed to optimize social welfare, it is important to distinguish it from what I believe would be an inapt use of the patent system. It would be inappropriate, in my view, to use the patent system to advance an industrial policy or to assure the pecuniary interest of investors. 
In developing a scale of likelihood of invention, we must not extend it to the point where exclusivity is no longer granted on the basis of creativity, but instead inappropriately granted merely to encourage investment or to ensure a good return on an organization's sunk capital. Such a use of the patent system would, in my view, be inappropriate. See, for example, Charles River Bridge Company v. Warren Bridge Company, 36 U.S. 420, 1837. In my opinion, institution of such a probabilistic test for non-obviousness would contribute significantly to improving patent quality. But implementation of that test alone is not sufficient. That is because in many cases, the non-obviousness of an invention is not always non-obvious in the same way. The probability of inventive success is made up of the compound probability of the insights and choices made by the inventor to conceive of and reduce the invention to practice. These include, in my opinion, the probabilities of A, diagnosing the underlying problem, of B, creating a concrete concept to overcome the underlying problem, and of C, enabling the concrete concept. See also Mandel in the U.S. Davis Law Review at 61, quote, Patent doctrine should recognize that different inventions may be non-obvious for different types of reasons, end quote. And also, Gene C. Frommer, The Layers of Obviousness in Patent Law, 22 Harvard Journal of Law and Technology, 75-78, fall of 2008. In biotech, the, quote, reduction to practice is inherently complex, even once the inventive concept is fixed in the inventor's mind, end quote. With caution, to avoid setting an industrial rather than an innovation policy, an inquiry into non-obviousness and an optimized patent examination process should therefore consider in relation to the prior art, three factors, which are, one, the creative effort initially in identifying the underlying technical problem or issue, two, the creative effort in conceptually solving the problem or otherwise creating a benefit arising out of recognition of the issue, and three, the creative effort required to enable the concept. Each of these potentially creative steps could be scaled relative to an uncertainty level inherent in any given field. Further, the likelihood of success applied to each factor would then be compared to the degree of creativity expected from a person of ordinary skill in succeeding at each stage and moving from one stage to the next. Dividing the inventive analysis with respect to non-obviousness into such three subcomponents and using a probabilistic guideline for creativity has two results. First, patent grants would be more closely related to social value, and second, the analytical framework would provide the examiner a uniform process in determining whether an invention is worthy to be patented. By running through the steps, examiner's analyses will become more consistent and credible. By considering each step in the process, the prior art relevant to each step in turn can be considered to determine which of the steps, or which steps in combination, if at all, would place an invention, as claimed, above the level of obviousness. In such an inquiry, it would be expected that a prior art search would bring about different prior art references that would be of different importance for each of the steps. Such a step-by-step -step process would also provide an opportunity for the examiner to place into the record a much fuller analysis of the thinking that went into the decision-making process. As a result, the examination process should improve and provide the applicant a better understanding of the concerns of the examiner. Also, the applicant would be able to provide a more focused response to an examiner's rejection. Further, such a process would enable the public and the courts to review the record and understand the rationale for either rejection or allowance. It would be easier to determine whether the examiner's rationale was deemed to be correct. More credibility in the quality of the examination would be established to help a subsequent tribunal assess the level of deference that should be accorded to the examiner's arguments. 
The degree of deference is critical to the process because examination at the USPTO is the earliest tribunal to review the invention for patentability, and thus the patent examiner is in the best position to cast aside the hindsight problem. A high degree of deference to patent examiner analysis will be the best way to avoid impermissible hindsight in declaring invention obvious at a later time. See Mandel in the Yale Journal of Law and Technology, jury instruction does not help with hindsight bias, but USPTO examiners tend to show less hindsight bias. If the only true way to avoid the hindsight problem is to make the non-obviousness judgment as close in time as possible to the invention date, then the patent system will work best with a process of A, rapid examination and short pendency, and B, high deference to patent examiner determinations. See Jan Wu, Rewinding Time, Advances in Mitigating Hindsight Bias in Patent Obviousness Analysis, 97, Kentucky Law Journal, 565-569-2009. As an aside, in cases where the examination is extended in continuation practice, there are offsetting effects of the hindsight problem because hindsight works both ways. A long pendency will contribute to use of hindsight to inappropriately declare an invention obvious. In addition, but also, a long pendency tends to lead applicants to use hindsight to tailor claim language to cover the invention in the direction that the technology is advanced. So if an applicant wishes to extend pendency to cover a competitor's later advances of technology, in a sense, the applicant should not complain that the examiner then uses hindsight to view the same advance of technology and subsequently declare a newly drafted claim to be obvious. See Gansey, an 89 Journal of the Patent and Trademark Office Society, 545 at 599, July 2007. If the pendency for applications is reduced to a year or less, the significance of hindsight, both with respect to examiner and applicant, is reduced. In conclusion, in order to improve patent quality from a public policy perspective, it becomes apparent that practitioners and examiners must provide assurance of an examination process that consistently and uniformly positions the threshold of non-obviousness determinations at an optimized level for social benefit. Such an optimization can be accomplished by considering non-obviousness in the context of the relative likelihood from the perspective of a person of ordinary skill that an inventor will have embarked on an inquiry or direction so have to conceive and successfully reduce the invention to practice. By also considering the various steps leading an inventor to an innovation, the examiner receives the analytical framework needed for a quality examination, and future tribunals are provided with the benefits of the analytical steps of the examiners, made at a time that was relatively close to the time of the invention. Further, a timely examination that is well-reasoned and well-documented and thereby worthy of deference provides the best and perhaps the only way to consistently mitigate the hindsight problem while maintaining a flexible and objective inquiry into patentability. See Simica 248 in the NVV Abbott Laboratories, 512 F3rd 1363 1373 Fed Circuit 2008, the court held that, quote, there must be some articulated reasoning with rational underpinning to support the legal conclusion of obviousness, end quote. See also the Harvard Law Review at 382 through 5. Quote, the court's inability to combat hindsight bias without exacerbating the overissuance problem and vice versa suggests that patent reform may be better left to the PTO, end quote. And finally, see Wu at 577. Quote, a positive aspect of the KSR decision from the standpoint of mitigating hindsight bias is the court's demand that a patent rejection on the ground of obviousness must have an explicit analysis demonstrating the obviousness of the invention, end quote. Thank you for your attention. 
This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.